you are new, you picked an outstanding time to join us because today we launch a new series from the book of Acts, which is titled Unconquered. And the subtitle of our series is From One Life to All Nations. And uh, you know, one of my commitments when we do series is to get good resources into your hands and to recommend them as we're able. And the first one that I want to recommend this morning is the very thing that I hope you were given when you walked in this morning, which is this booklet, this study guide that has Unconquered across the top of it. So, I I, I mean, Lance Olam, the Midtown pastor, has served us in a magnificent way by pulling together all of this material. And I just want to make sure you understand why this was created. It was created to serve you. It was created for several reasons. First, to provide some additional study for you. So you'll notice as you go through it, there's There's a section on the context for each message that we're giving from Acts, and then there's some additional reading that you can do if you're interested. Also, it provides you a devotional tool. So as you have an opportunity each morning, afternoon, evening, whenever, to do your devotions, there are some questions in here that will help to to, uh, lead you towards engaging the material in Acts and applying it yourself and your relationship with Jesus. There's also a community group section because we want to get us all talking about acts in the context of of our community and then also to provide you some direction and this is the last reason to provide you some direction on how to apply this with one single person so that you can apply the book of acts in the life of somebody that you're reaching out to and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the context of this message and the next couple two as well. Okay, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1. And if you're there, go ahead and stick your finger in Acts chapter 1 and flip over to Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke, just a few books to the left, Luke chapter 1. The title of today's message, first message in the Acts series, is Unconquered the pilot, unconquered, the pilot. And I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. First, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, over to Acts Chapter 1 now, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now as the living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Recognizing that we also, as living stones, are now being built together for holy worship. And Lord, part of that experience is as we gather to read your word, to hear your word preached and to encounter you through your word. So now, Lord, build us into you and build us into one another as we leave shore in this book of Acts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 30th of 1540, Thomas Abel was martyred. Thomas was the chaplain to Queen Catherine, who was the first in a long line of wives of Henry VIII, the rather gruesome king who was accustomed to disposing of his wives when he became bored with them. Thomas Abel was martyred because he wrote something that he believed in, and then he refused to renounce what he believed in when he was called upon to renounce it. Thomas Abel had said that it was wrong for the king to divorce his wife, that it was wrong for the king to replace God's truth with man's opinion. And Thomas Abel titled the book that he had written where he set forth these ideas, he titled it Invicta Veritas, which is Latin for unconquered truth. And the idea behind what he was setting forth was that real truth has a durable quality to it. Real truth is worthy of sacrifice, even of the sacrifice of one's life. That real truth stands even when we fall. That real truth is, in its essence, unconquerable. The book of Acts comes to us this morning as Invicta Veritas, unconquered truth. This is the unconquered truth 
of the gospel. This is the unconquered story of the spread of the gospel. And it is unstoppable. And it continues today. And we are being swept up in it even as we read, study, and begin to apply. I think we have to admit from the outset, though, that we're not accustomed to handling unconquered stories. Because we live in a day when stories are disposable. We live in a day where we update our Facebook and the old stories become dust in the wind within seconds. Our YouTube shorts go viral for 15 minutes of fame and then they're gone. They're forgotten. But there are certain truths. There are certain stories that have a kind of timeless quality to them. And it's primarily because they are God's story. They are rooted in the story of God and God's story with man. In other words, they are invicta veritas. They are unconquered truth. Unconquered because of the origin, which is God, not man. Unconquered because truth in and of itself is resilient. It survives assaults and trends. It stands the test of time. It is by nature unstoppable, unconquerable. And Acts comes to us this way as invicta veritas, as unconquered truth. It is the unconquered truth of how the Spirit of God made the gospel of God this global message, this unconquered message. And it all begins with the first 11 verses of Acts. But here's the important thing we have to realize as we read this section of Scripture, that these first 11 verses are not simply an introduction to Acts, but they also act as a summation of the entire message of Acts. In fact, this section traces the entire arc of the book. And it's a wonderful book. This book is going to stir you. This book is going to challenge you. This this book is going to do things in your life that you never dreamed because this is a story that thrills us with power and adventure and healings and even judgment. And it talks about the march of this unstoppable gospel, not only through culture, but through the lives of individuals. And what I tried to do in approaching this section was to was to capture what's taught in these first 11 verses in just one line so that we can then teach through it. And and this this is kind of what I came up with as I thought about how to say what's in these first 11 verses in one line. Here goes. It's history teaches, or history shows, (laughs) that the work of the conquering Christ continues through an empowered and multiplying church. History shows that the work of the conquering Christ continues through an empowered and multiplying church. Now, we're going to spend the rest of this message examining that statement and summarizing why that statement defines and describes and unpacks and exposits this section of Scripture. So so let's just go to the first section of that statement. History Shows History shows, what does history show? History shows first an author. In other words, you don't have to be a New Testament scholar or an archaeologist to conclude that Luke wrote Acts. You compare Luke with Acts, Acts with Luke, and you will find that the writing styles are the same. But even more obvious and evident is that Acts is introduced to us 
as a companion volume to Luke. I mean, look at the first six words. In the first book, O Theophilus, so he's talking, he's connecting Acts to the first book of Luke. Also, there are sections of Acts that we're going to study in the days to come in Acts 16 and 20 and 21 and 27, where Luke begins to identify himself with Paul and starts to talk about how we travel. Because Luke was, for a period of time, Paul's traveling companion. Luke was Paul's personal physician. So there are many evidences in the New Testament itself that Luke wrote Acts. But then also the early church fathers weigh in, and it seems as if they are unanimous, whether it is Irenaeus or Clement or Tertullian or Origen, that all agreed that Luke wrote Acts. So history shows, means first, that there is a distinct, identifiable author who comes to us with a message. But Luke doesn't just present himself as a guy with a perspective. He comes to us and presents himself as a qualified historian who has something that we need to hear. In fact, we will discover as we read his words that, that this is not just a man that, 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 that believes he heard something that needed to be captured or journaled about, but he is a careful, detailed curator of information that God wanted to preserve. And beginning in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to flip back there to chapter 1, Luke outlines three different sources for what he writes to us in both Luke and in Acts. First, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke, he identifies other writers. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, he's saying, there are other writers And they have compiled these narratives. And certainly when he's referring to that, he has in mind John and Mark and Matthew, but others as well. So there are many others who have compiled narratives, he says. But secondly, in Luke chapter 1, verse 2, he says, there are those from the beginning, listen to this, he says, who were eyewitnesses and ministers who delivered this to us. In other words, Luke is saying that what you're about to read comes directly from eyewitness reports. I talked to them. I was there. I was asking the questions, and I compiled the reports based upon that. So there is other writings. There is eyewitness accounts. And then finally, Luke talks about his own analysis in verses 3 and 4. He says, it then seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time to write an orderly account. In other words, Luke didn't rely exclusively just upon what other people were writing and just upon even what eyewitnesses were saying, but his goal was to scientifically verify what it was he had heard and what it was he had experienced. Remember, this guy that we're talking about is a physician. Wikipedia is not going to cut it for this guy. And and Theophilus is a government official who does not suffer fools. He is in a position where he wants to act upon what he believes is Jesus as Lord and Master. But in order to do that, he needs something. He needs to know whether this is real. And so Luke seeks to help him. But this is not an unverified report. So so Luke says in verse 3, 
I followed all things closely so that I could write an orderly account. I mean, are you glad that God is so committed to getting us the truth that he puts it in the hands of men like Luke and they preserve it under the inspiration of the Spirit? Now, there's a reason I'm telling you this, and that is because all of that is really important. But we're about to read, as we wade into this wonderful book, we're about to read accounts of power and healing and miracles and revival and church plantings. And it's going to make a kind of claim upon us. And and we can say we won't pursue it. We can say we elect not to embrace it. We can say we're going to resist the claim that this book makes upon us. But we cannot dismiss it as if it never happened. We cannot write this off as as if it is an accurate portrayal of what took place in history. Because this is a corroborated history based upon eyewitness testimony that was carefully recorded. It's, it's history. It's more than history, but it's certainly no less than history. So that's why we begin with history shows. So what does history show? Well, history shows that the work of the conquering Christ continues. Now, check out this fascinating phrase. Flip back over to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. This is almost a teaser that comes to us in the book of Acts. Acts 1, verse 1. In the book, first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke is saying, in my gospel, that was about Jesus' earthly ministry. It was about what Jesus began to do and teach. He began it there. Now, the meaning here is not some subtle implication. Because what he's saying now is that what I'm about to write in Acts is what Jesus continues to do. It's about the ongoing ministry of Christ after he left the earth. See, some people see the Gospels as the work of Christ and Acts as the work of the church or Acts as the work of the apostles, but it's all inaccurate because all of it is the work of Jesus. And if you pay careful attention There's this watershed event that Luke uses to close his gospel, and then he uses to open Acts with. And that watershed event is the ascension of Jesus Christ. He was the risen, conquering king. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says he presented himself alive. He presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs. There goes the history again. By many proofs, for 40 days. You know, we don't think much about what happened after Easter. We just think, he is risen, praise God. But no, Jesus hung around 40 days. And he was doing some very specific things there. He was equipping his people. He was talking to them about the kingdom of God. And, And as a king, he then returned to heaven, thus terminating his earthly ministry. But inaugurating a whole new phase of ministry for Jesus, inaugurating his heavenly ministry where he sat down next to the Father, he began to intercede for his people, and he sends them into the world to go. He sends them in the world with the gospel. So the conquering Christ now continues the work of the gospel in the world through the local church. G. Campbell Morgan once said, quote, 
We might therefore call this book, which we are studying, not the Acts of the Apostles, but the book of the continued doing and teaching of the living Christ by the Holy Spirit through his body, which is the church. Now, it ain't pithy, but it couldn't be more accurate because the point here, right out of the gate, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1, is that the work of the conquering Christ now continues through the church. See, when we think of Jesus leaving the earth, we can, we can <clears throat> readily identify with the disciples' sense of confusion. I mean, verse 9, at the ascension, he raised, he's rising from the earth, and they're just looking up, and they're fixed on heaven, because all along they've been led to believe, not led by Jesus, but led by their own hearts, to believe that this was the beginning of the end, that this was the beginning of the kingdom of God, that he was staying. That's why I hang around, day 12, day 14, day 16, that he was staying, that the kingdom of God was going to be separated, that it was going to be set up. That's why they asked him, is, is it now that the kingdom of God is going to come? When's the kingdom of God going to come? And so they're, they're thinking that, and then all of a sudden he's, he's leaving them, and they're looking up, having all kind of experiences, having all kind of emotions at that moment, and, and we remain kind of frozen alongside of them, staring into heaven, crushed by this sense of loss, unable to understand why it's happening, unable to bring our, break our gaze from heaven and bring it back to earth because we're beginning to realize, wait a minute, he's no longer here. He's gone. And, and, the, and, and the earthly perspective in that moment is our hope is gone. But the heavenly take is, yeah, I'm gone, but you're on, and someone else is coming, and it's what I've promised all along, and now it's about to take place because the moment has happened. I have returned to the Father. And have you ever read the, the Gospel of John? And Do you remember some of the passages that emerged there that talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit? John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you that I go away, he said. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's like Jesus is saying, once I go, he comes. Once he comes, you go. That's, that's kind of the arrangement here. Once I come, once I go, he comes. Once he comes, you go. My work is going to continue through you. In fact, greater work is going to continue through you. That's actually out of Jesus' mouth. John chapter 14, verse 12. He said, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. Do you, do you get what's being said here? Jesus said, once I go, he comes. Once he comes, you go. You continue my ministry. The words and works of God continue through you. I mean, who would have ever dreamed that this would have been part of the divine strategy? That the work of the conquering Christ is going to continue through you and me? 
I mean, think about it as we conduct this medical clinic on September 13th to, to, to uninsured people and those less fortunate in Tallahassee. The work of the conquering Christ continues. As we give our finances to see the gospel go forward through our partners in Nepal and Uganda and India, the work of the conquering Christ continues. As we go to apply this series at home, in our neighborhood, where we're employed, the work of the conquering Christ continues. That's by design. And it's interesting that, that, that this is a global call, but ultimately that's not where Luke is starting. Luke is actually starting with just one single person. It's something interesting to think about. In fact, I read a commentator who pointed out that Luke's writing, this would be the Luke and Acts corpus, Luke's writing occupies about 30% of the New Testament. And all of that is written to one person, Theophilus. All of that is written to one single life. It's a lot of ink spilled for one single life. If you look in your study guide, you will notice there is a section that is titled One Life. And it should be in there for each week. And it is there because we decided in the context of this series not to launch mass crusades, not to call us to reach the nations at first, not to organize a social media blitz in order to reach all of Tallahassee, although all of those can be legitimate goals in different places and at different times. But in other words, we just want to do to kind of dispense with the grandiose goals that can often come when you're teaching through a book like this, in the book of Acts in particular, and just reduce it all down and make it about one life. Make it about one life. So, so we're going to, over the next few weeks, invite each of us to seek God and to just identify not, not the 50 people that you want to reach, but the one that you want to pray for over the next nine or ten months, the one you want to serve, the one you want to reach out to, the one you want to invite over to your home, the one you want to invite to church, the one you want to share the gospel with. And we're going to spend the entirety of the series as a personal application just dedicating ourselves not to the globe, but to one single person. And I guess another way to talk about that is to ask you, who is your Theophilus. Who is your Theophilus? I want, I want to ask you to start thinking about that one person that you want to reach during this series, because next week and then the following week, we're going to actually hand out cards where you'll be able to identify them, and you'll, that'll help you to remember. Because we have this sense that the Spirit of God, through the conquering Christ, wants to use us to continue His work right here where we live, right in our families, right in our neighborhoods, right in this community, and to do it one person at a time because the work of the conquering Christ continues through us. So history shows that the work of the conquering Christ continues through an empowered and multiplying church. Let me talk first about an empowered church. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power, this is the promise of the Father, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, to, to grasp the magnitude of this point, I want us to first think about the audience for this point. Because according to verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 1, the audience, the target group, is the apostles. The apostles. You know, that the gang that was called by Jesus originally, that had now walked with him for over three years. We're talking about the ones that were present during the healings. They were there for the miraculous feeding of the thousands. They were there when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. They were there when Jesus was arrested, and and they said, who is Jesus? And he said, I am he, and the power from Jesus just blew everybody off their feet. They were there when he was crucified. They were there when the land darkened as he was being crucified. They were there when the earth shook. They were there when he was resurrected from the dead, where Jesus mysteriously appeared, even in front of Thomas and allowed Thomas to feel the reality of his, his risen body. They were there that whole time, And according to chapter 1, verse 3, they were not only there then, but they're there after the resurrection, before the ascension, for those 40 days, being provided what Scripture says is many proofs for 40 days. I mean, think about it. Was there ever a group in in the history of the world that was more prepared to execute a mission than this one? with all of the things they had, all of the benefits, all of the advantages, all the time they took. My son is an army captain. He's about to be redeployed to Afghanistan. The first time he was deployed to Afghanistan, he was, let, he was active for less than a year, and boom, off to a mission. What is it exactly about these guys who are trained by God incarnate for the last three years for their mission, and yet they can't execute it? What is it that they're waiting for? What is it that they need? Again, Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is saying, you're not ready yet because I want you to wait. I want you to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the coming of of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk in the context of this series about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be coming at that in a number of different ways. But for the context of this passage, let me just say that the promise of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, signals a couple of different things. It signals, first, the fulfillment of the promises beginning all the way back in Joel, but seen in John, in Luke, in Acts, that God was going to promise the Holy Spirit. He's he's saying here, I'm going to fulfill that promise. Secondly, the Spirit's coming is going to inaugurate the church. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says Jesus spent 40 days speaking to them about the kingdom of God, specifically about the kingdom. In fact, Again, that was such a prominent theme 
that at Jesus' ascension, the preoccupying question of the disciples is, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Because they were looking for a kind of public coronation. They thought this must be it. This is the time. Not knowing and not fully comprehending that the kingdom, the reign and rule of God, had already arrived in Jesus. It was that seed that had been sown that slowly, slowly insinuating itself into the earth, into the people, and making its way, growing, expanding. So his response to them is not to answer that question, but to direct them to the Spirit, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then in chapter 2, when the Spirit comes, the church begins. Now, the church is not the kingdom, but the kingdom produces the church. And so when it talks about the coming of the Spirit, it's not simply to bless people or to give them power. It's also an announcement that the church is about to begin. So those first two, the fulfillment of the promise, the installation of the church, those are those are things that happened back then, one time, unrepeatable. They don't happen every day. It's not like God is constantly inaugurating the church in the earth. But here's something that is a repeatable feature of Acts chapter 2. A repeatable feature of this promise in Acts chapter 1. And that is that the Spirit comes to empower His people, to enable His people to have impact as they go forth doing the works of Jesus. And it's available for all of his people. He said, you will receive power. Verse 8, you will receive power. Greek word for power there, by the way, is dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite. You will receive dynamite. In chapter 1 of Acts, the apostles didn't go forth on their mission yet because they had not yet received dynamite. So they are told that you are still unprepared. You can't go out yet because you haven't got the dynamite you need. I mean, just think about that. Think about that for a second. All of the preparation they had with Jesus did not replace their need for power. The years of training by the Savior did not replace their need for power. The the, the times of seeing the Savior, even seeing the Savior resurrected, did not replace their need for power. They needed something more. They needed something more than a vision. They needed something more than an experience, something more than just information. Listen, you need something more. I need something more. We need dynamite. Something that will empower us to do what we're not necessarily motivated to do, what we don't necessarily feel empowered to do, God says, don't worry, I got power coming. I've got dynamite aimed at you. I think I should probably alert you at the beginning here. This, this book is going to challenge your comfort zone. This book should come with a warning label. Because dealing with dynamite is hazardous. When dynamite comes your way, Life is neither safe nor predictable. It's not safe or predictable when one is dealing with dynamite. I I just read this story day before yesterday about a fisherman who had this kind of innovative idea. He thought, you know what, I'm kind of sick of fishing in the conventional way. So what he did is he he bought some dynamite and he decided that he was going to blow fish out of the water. So when he got 
He got several sticks of dynamite, took his dog, went down to the river, and he lit the stick of dynamite, and he threw it, and it flew over the river and hit a rock and sat on top of the rock. The dog thought they were playing fetch. And so he went, swam through, grabbed the stick, and then began to return it to the fisherman. Now, the fisherman began to run, but of course, the dog was faster than the fisherman. You know, it's, it's hard to discern in the story which mammal is most stupid. So at the last moment, the fisherman climbs a tree and survives the explosion. Sadly, the dog was not as fortunate. My point is, all dogs go to No, my point is... <laughs> My point is that when dynamite is coming your way, life gets risky. When dynamite is coming your way, life gets unpredictable. When dynamite is coming your way, it disrupts your comfort, and it actually stirs new motivation, motivation that you didn't have in the past, motivation to be set in motion. Listen, here's the nub of what I'm trying to say. God loves sinners too much to leave them lost. So he gives his people dynamite. God loves us too much to leave us fruitless. So he gives his people dynamite. He sends his power to his people. But that power comes with an intention. In other words, God is not merely looking to give us an experience of power. We're we're wide open to that. May God send his power And give us an experience of power. But God's not merely looking to give us an encounter with his power. So that we can go home and journal about it. He sends his spirit. That his spirit might send us. So it's not just about an empowered church. But also about a multiplying church. Again, verse 8. You'll receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But the verse doesn't end there. You will receive my power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Because we need his power to be his witness. So it's not just about an empowered church, but a multiplying church. And this is a very important passage in the whole book of Acts. In fact, I brought a quote by Kent Hughes where he said, verse 8, quote, verse 8 is the key verse of the entire book of Acts. Verse 8 is is the hinge upon which the entire book of Acts swings. And it's because in verse 8, we learn some very specific things. First, that the power of God has a point. Secondly, that the point is to multiply. Thirdly, that the target for the power is the loss. The point behind the power is the loss. The point behind the power is not simply to bless us, as, as much of a blessing as it can be, but the point behind the power is to send us out. It's to send us to go. It's to bless and reach the lost. And so as we wade into chapter 2, we're going to discover that when the power comes... The church goes. When the, when the power comes, the church forms, and then the church goes. And that's part of the reason the power has to come. But for right now, I just want you to focus on verse 8. I want you to focus on verse 8 because 
These are the Savior's final earthly words, last words he ever said on earth. And they have reverberated throughout history. And they arrive here today. You will receive my power. And you will be my witnesses. And and there's a sense where I think God wants to make that passage. He wants to give it fresh life within your life through this series. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, are we ready for that? Because dynamite is messy. Because dynamite is unpredictable. Because dynamite is risky. Let me ask you a question. Where did your mind go the first time you heard we were, we're going to be teaching through Acts? Actually, wh- where was your mind this morning? What was the first spontaneous thought when I began talking about one life and dedicating ourselves to one life and choosing your Theophilus? You know, I've got to tell you, this comes at a bad time for me. I don't completely understand this in my life. First job I ever had in ministry was I was a full-time evangelist. That's what I did. My motivation for the loss oozed from every pore of my body. I'm a long way from there. I mean, this used to come naturally to me. It, now it's like work. I mean, even to get the motivation to do it is like work. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think I'm probably speaking for a lot of us, if not most of us. I think that's part of why Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Because evangelizing is work. So so I want to get you to just be honest right now about where you are. You know, where are you with this whole idea of picking one life? Maybe you go to the same place I do, which is to just think, Lord, I have nothing to give right now. Lord, I'm no longer motivated in the way I was. Maybe for some of you it's, Lord, I could care less. Or maybe you live with the what I call the I'm twos. I'm twos. I'm too old. I'm too alone. I'm too afflicted. I'm too fearful. If that's you, I just want to invite you to cry out to God for the same thing I need. I think the same thing we need. What we all need, we need dynamite, don't we? We need dynamite. Something to blow apart our unbelief. Something to blow up our cynicism. Something to dislodge our desires for the lost from a mountain of ambivalence and get them tumbling toward Theophilus. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's what we need. That's why God has us in the book of Acts. Listen, if these guys that actually walked with Christ needed dynamite, I want to suggest that you and I might need it as well. But here's the thing. God is saying to us that to reach one life, we need three persons. Not just the Father. Not just the Son, but we need the Holy Spirit. Now, now let's be honest. Some of us are real, are fine with the Father. We're cool with Jesus. But the Holy Spirit's like that weird uncle we never talk about. 
He's the one that does unpredictable things. He's the one that disrupts our life. He's the one that brings dynamite, and dynamite is risky. Dynamite is unpredictable. Dynamite makes us move in ways we don't necessarily want to move. But he is also the one that has given to us, that has entrusted to us invicta veritas, unconquered truth. And you know what? I can't wait to see. I can't imagine what's going to happen over the next nine or ten months as we dive into this book. I can't imagine how God is going to move on you. I even have faith that God is going to move upon me. I can't wait to see what God is going to do as we study this transforming book of the Bible. But until then, let me encourage you to place your tray tables in an upright position and buckle your seatbelt because this ride is about to get exciting.